one of my crow friends up there. Um, they have a nest. They've had a nest for years in the tree over there. Have you named them? No. My mother had one that came and fed from her hand quite recently, which she called Russell. Oh, really? Which she thought was hilarious. Why did he eat from her hand? Um, just came to the garden every day, was eating from the, from the bird table, and then... Trusted her enough. Yeah. Um, animals have always liked Mum. I have a crow who comes every morning, and now she has two children who are raucous. Um, and um, I feed her on the windowsill at the office if I'm there, and if not, someone else does. And she knows us, but she always comes quite quietly, and then when she's finished, she gives this really loud caw, say, <laughs> done it, I'm done. thanks. <laughs> um, but she has one foot. She has two legs, but she has one foot. And um, I think of her out in the winter and the ice and the snow and how hard it must be for her to balance and cope. But she does it just all, raises the children. And, I mean, phenomenal. Do you think it's important to anthropomorphize? I don't think it is anthropomorphizing. I think it's, it's a sort of pompous concept we have that they're our traits when they're clearly shared traits. Uh-huh. I mean, we're not the only ones who feel love and pain and loneliness and happiness. And it's, uh, it's, it's part of our God complex, I think, that mm. we think that, oh, those are things that only happen to human beings, and they're not. Um, it's, it's the perversity of animal testing, is that the more that humanity has done, the more we have been confronted with the reality that... I mean, there, there was an experiment that I read about that was discovering that rats had hope. Um, and there was a forced drowning thing where... Oh, we're doing the forced drowning, yes. It was just disastrous. We just won that at um, King's College London. They just decided they wouldn't do it anymore. We just got Pfizer and Bristol-Myers Squibb to stop doing the forced swim test. It's just... The things they do are an abomination. The thing is that they figure out that animals have feelings Mm -hmm. in these psychology experiments... But that doesn't stop them from doing yeah. pain and research on them and everything else. It should make them think we can't do it then, but it doesn't. Well, let's, let's kick off properly, right. and then we'll, we'll talk about... I think we're going to go down a million wonderful rabbit holes. Um, I think more than any other guest, I've got more questions and more oh, curiosities. God. So you've got three hours, right? That's right. <laughs> In the depth of the forest, an old oak the pride of the greenwood there. O'er his branches the ivy her mantle threw When the forest boughs were bare Oh, the oak and the ivy Oh, the oak and the ivy Hello, I'm David Oakes and welcome to Trees A Crowd. This is a podcast for those of you who, like me, think our natural world is incredible. Including those whose plight is to fight for an animal's right, I get to talk with people dedicated to or inspired by our natural world. And this week I'm in London at the British headquarters of the People for the Ethical Treatment of Animals, PETA for short, and I've come here to talk to their president and founder, Ingrid Newkirk. Ingrid is an animal rights activist who was born in Britain, raised in India, served at one time as a deputy sheriff in America, and through her creation of PETA, amongst many, many other things, enabled the first case of animal cruelty to be heard before the United States Supreme Court. Ingrid, hello, and welcome to Trees A Crowd. Hello, David. Thanks very much for having me. So um, we've got so much to talk about. Um, I would like to start with Formula One. Huh. I'm going to take us miles away from, from, from animals. Um, one of the most interesting... So Peter is renowned for doing big stunts, some inflammatory, some 
provocative. Provocative. What's the word you would describe to, to use to describe Peter's approach to making people aware of what you're doing? Well, we have to sometimes be gimmicky. Mm. Mostly nowadays we don't have to be as gimmicky as we once did because people are beginning to understand the concepts that we've pushed on them for a long time. Your, your name goes before you, I guess. I suppose so. But, you know, Formula One isn't that removed when you think of Lewis Hamilton, for example, who is, mm-hmm. you know, an outstanding vegan representative, ethical about animal things. Do you, see, already I've got so many directions. I haven't even said why we're talking about Formula One. Let's talk about why I'm talking about Formula One. So one of the things that you did in 2003, I think, was you released your will publicly. Yes. Um, in which you asked that the meat of your body or a portion thereof be used for human barbecue, that your skin be used to turn into leather, that uh, point C was uh, in remembrance of elephant foot umbrella stands and tiger rugs that you saw as a child in India, you wanted your feet to be removed and umbrella stands or other ornamentation to be made from them. That's right. And then the list goes on. And when you get down to J, it's you want a little part of your heart buried near the racetrack at Hockenheim preferably near the Ferrari pits where Michael Schumacher raced and won the German Grand Prix. Yes, that doesn't have anything (laughs) to do with animals. That was my little indulgence because I watched Michael Schumacher for years and years. I've always been an F1 fan, and I thought he was the most extraordinary driver. And he Mm -hmm. actually, not to bring it back to animals, he did help us. He signed a letter objecting to monkey experiments that were going on at a university in Germany. And if anyone remembers Hurricane Katrina, where Louisiana and those states Mm -hmm. were devastated, he um, ponied up some money for the dogs who were being brought out of there who were still alive. And so I I had a lot of respect for him. Oh, I know something else he did. He and his wife um, funded a project we had in Turkey where these debilitated ponies were being used to haul... Uh, rubbish from a, a rubbish heap, um, mm. a big dump, public dump uh, somewhere. And we've exchanged them for eco-tractors and retired all <laughs> the ponies. So I love Michael. But you liked him before then. I mean, this is... I, I pick on this to start with because it's it couldn't seem more removed from Peter and from what people may or may not know about you. I mean, I, I grew up in Toaster, quite near Silverstone, so I've always been a bit oh. a, a bit obsessed with Formula One myself. So it's, it's just a greedy question. Is <laughs> What is it about it? Is it the colour? Is it the speed? Is it the sort of sex of it? Well, what is it? Oh, it's a lot of things, and I don't really know why. But um, when I was growing up in India, you know, they don't have lanes that are defined. So you really just go about from place to place trying to wedge your way between cars and bullock carts and and honking the horn so and driving it reminds you of your speed. childhood. I, I think that it, I, I, I picked up on that was the way you drive. Uh-huh. And if you look really at Formula One, that very calculated, but they drive at speed trying to overtake the next person. Mm-hmm. It, it just resonated with me. Have you been following the development of the EPRI? Of course, yes. Do you think that's a good thing, to move away from the fossil fuel side of things? Absolutely. And and Lewis, of course, is pushing in so many ways for Formula One to change. And I think he's going to make a big difference there on the track. I mean, on and off the track, the carbon footprint is massive. It's horrible, yes. And, of course, I was a fan before anybody even thought about a carbon footprint, had heard the words carbon footprint. You're you're free from that. Do, do Do you think that you can be an animal rights activist without being an environmentalist? 
That's a big question. Well, I don't think that you can be an environmentalist with if you continue to... We, we have a saying, you know, you can't be a meat and dairy-eating environmentalist. And I, I think what we're seeing with the upsurge of vegan eating mm-hmm. is that people are cluing into the fact that uh, the United Nations, the World Health Organization, all these people are coming out with studies. You know the business of no matter if you put all the... Uh, emissions from cars and trains and boats and planes together, it wouldn't equal the damaging effect of animal-based agriculture. Mm-hmm. And so it's it's easy to say, you know, I won't take as many flights, but I think it's um, harder for people to say, I, I won't eat dairy and meat anymore. But yet they are saying it because the onus is on people to do something. Finally, we're seeing all these droughts and floods and mm-hmm. fires and Everything. I mean, you've gone on the record before. I watched a talk you did, I think, in 2017 for saying that you didn't want Peter to only focus on factory farming, that even though it is one of the greatest emissions creators, you need people to, f- to focus on all the fights and there needs to be a battle going on everywhere on a united front. Well, with environmentalism, I think it's not only that you eat, you, you really can't eat animals, you can't wear them either because if you think about it, all the animals who are used for wool and feathers and even crocodile skin, all this stuff, mohair, cashmere, they're all eaten. The goats, the, all of them, even the crocodiles and the ostriches, they're now making little medallions and little burgers for them in these exotic foods restaurants. So from an environmental perspective, it's, it is what you eat and what you wear, and it's the use of water and it's so on. But from an animal rights perspective, there is an ethical aspect, which is if you shouldn't harm or bully or dominate or do any of those things to others, then think about you can't do it to others who happen not to be human. I mean, they're non-human in the way I'm a non-hamster. I mean, who cares? (laughs) (laughs) You know? Well, there was something you said, which was um, there's no rational basis for saving, uh, saying that a human being has special rights. A rat is a pig, is a boy, uh, is a dog, is a... You could continue on that train of thought. Yeah, absolutely. Um... We're going to talk about, I mean, I've got to, there's so many things. Anyway, but what's interesting about now is ethical veganism has just been written into UK law within the workplace. It's now a philosophical, philosophical belief that has the same potency as a religious belief, which is a, a landmark shift in how Britain has branded veganism. It's now no longer just some hippies eating green things. Mm-hmm. It's now something that has to be legally protected. Yeah, it, it's an absolutely wonderful thing. You're seeing the courts do similar things in other places, perhaps not as uh, wonderfully forward-thinking as that. There was just a case with an elephant in Asia who had been rescued from some abomination and was moved to a sanctuary. Oh, Brazil, actually, I think. Mm-hmm. And the the um, government taxed her and said she was property and that there had to be a tax on her transfer the sanctuary went to court and said not going to pay it. It was quite hefty. And the judge actually ruled that her name is Ramba and said Ramba is not a commodity. She's a refugee. Mm-hmm. And you see little bits in India, um, which comes and goes in its attitude toward animals. Some is extreme on one side and extreme on the other. A Supreme Court justice just made a ruling that animals are no different from human beings. Of course, we are all mm-hmm. animals. Yes. Some of us more than others. Um, it's interesting that in terms of animals becoming human status, there was an orangutan I was reading about relatively recently, but also 
rivers and mountains and in some instances have been given uh, rights within law as the same as human being. Or at least some some uh, rights. And, mm-hmm. and and mostly they do hearken back to um, privation of human beings denied the right to enjoy them, for mm-hmm. example. And if we bring a case on behalf of an animal, we often have to prove to the court that the treatment of the animal affects us in some way. We're deprived of the enjoyment of ever seeing that animal again because they're locked in a cell somewhere. So there's a big human element still going on in the courts. So this this breakthrough was, of course, for a human being to establish the rights of vegans to have a philosophical belief. But we need to get to a point, and we've tried a couple of cases. You know, you lose, you lose, you lose, and you hope one day you win. Uh Is We've tried a couple of cases to say that animals in their own right should be able to be represented in court for their interests. We don't need to equate them to humanity first before we deem them to have any value. Let's go way, 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 way back to... Sorry, that was really rude. <laughs> <laughs> yes, and, and if it was before last Tuesday, I can't remember anyway. Um, apologies. You're I... looking at the wrinkles around my eyes, aren't no, you? No, no, no. I, I'm just, I, was, I was pausing, reading my notes, going, I need to work out where I'm going to start back. Um, let's go back 20 years, 30 years. I'm just coming across like a sleaze. I'm no, really it's fine. sorry. I'm probably blushing. I'm 70, if anyone's listening, and I don't care, except that I'm running out of time and well, I want to work quicker. It's Peter's birthday as well. It's who's 40. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But let's go back before Peter. Let's go a little bit further. I've got sort of mixed records. I've got uh, one thing saying that you were born in Surrey, another that you grew up in Orkney. Where where was home? when you? Were... I was born in Kingston-on-Thames. Oh, okay. Um, but my father moved around a lot when I was young. He wasn't wanted by the law. He was an engineer. And we ended up in on the Orkney Islands for a while. So I was in Orkney. And then we were in France and um, all over the continent. What kind of engineering was he doing? Uh, navigational, navigational engineering. Okay. And so he would uh, uh, scout out various sites. It's why we went to India, because India was anticipating a war with China. And he went to help devise bombing systems, of all things, at the Indochina border. Okay. And that's why I went to the U.S., because of the Vietnam War. That was uh, one of the things he was So you're born out of armaments and conflict? Yes. He was in Easter Island when they were doing the bomb work and so on. Wow. So can you remember much of those early years? When did you... You were seven, I think, when you moved to India? Yes, seven and a bit. Could you remember much of those first seven years? I do. I think it changed my life very much to see a different culture. Uh, One of the things, of course, was that cruelty to animals was there in front of you. It was on the street, whereas it's sanitized in England, in Europe, in in America. You don't really see it. It's hidden away. Mm -hmm. The laboratories, the... The, even the animal shelters are not there, whereas... Do you think that's always been the case in Britain? Or do you think that's... No, because I know, and it's certainly not in, in New York, they used to round up the stray dogs, put them in cages and lower the cages into the Hudson River and, to kill the dogs. And when I, Oh, uh, maybe uh, early 1900s. Okay. And when I went to Taiwan, that's actually what they were doing there. We stopped the drowning tanks, the strays being rounded up and drowned in tanks of water. But anyway, um, yeah, it's all all very pleasant. I mean, society evolves inch by inch, bit by bit, and we look back in horror Mm. at all the things that were thought normal. That were seen as normal, yeah. At at our house, people would come over and they would be on their way to pig sticking, which was, you know, running a, a spear through a wild boar. 
Uh, while you were on horseback, it was great fun, people said. And, of course, as you pointed out, we did have uh, an elephant foot umbrella case. We had tiger skin ruts. We had ivory ornaments. And we ate every animal under the sun. Did you... I mean, this is probably going to jump us a bit further forward, but were you appalled by what you saw at the time? At what point? I was appalled by cruelty to dogs and bullocks who were pulling carts. Um, I actually intervened when I was about eight to a man who was was whipping and beating his bullock on the street who had collapsed. This is in India. Yeah, yeah. in India. So some things did get to me, but... um, I remember being horrified. My mother took me in Delhi to a place where you could buy live chickens. And the cook was off that day, and so we went. And my mother chose the live chicken, and they just cut off her head. And I I wouldn't eat chicken after that for a long time. But you know how parents are when they think, oh, you're going to die of malnutrition. Nobody knew about vegan then or vegetarian then. And so she would say, oh, come on, just eat a little bit, just eat a little bit. And I went back. How much of your activism did your parents see? Um, They saw quite a bit before they passed on. Um, My mother started out, I think, uh, being very proud that she had imparted her words, which were, it doesn't matter who suffers, but that they suffer, because she was a big human rights that activist. That like Jeremy Bentham. No, that was my mother. There you go. <laughs> yes, it doesn't matter who, who suffers, but that they suffer. Jeremy Bentham had some good ones, but that was hers. And um, I went with her, and just because I was a child, and that's what she did, to the Mother Teresa's and the leper colonies and the things that she did for unwed mothers. She Uh was a big advocate for them in India. Did you meet Mother Teresa? I never met her, no. I only went to her orphanages Mm -hmm. and we packed pills and stuffed toys and did that sort of thing. Uh, Have you been back to India since often? Like, is it a a place with which you have any affinity? Um, I have very mixed feelings about it. In a way, it's my second home. Um, but, of course, there are terrible cruelties that go on in India that people don't even know about, really. But, yes, we have an office now in Mumbai and an office in Delhi. So I made good on my promise that I would go back one day and do something about cruelty to animals. We work on vegan issues there, and we work on uh, entertainments that use animals. There are terrible entertainments, like the bullfight. There are Jelly Kartu is something that goes on in Tamil Nadu where they fight the bulls or they wrestle the bulls. Is that like the Spanish bullfighting? It's not the same, but it's the same sort of idea. It's young macho men who are going to win prizes if they wrestle bulls to the ground. So Mm. you can have a hundred men jump on one bull and, um, you know, break off their horns and break their legs and... So on, and they think it's tradition. Sure. So in that way, it's. Well, I think. I mean, even in this country, with fox hunting, it is seen as a a right because it's a countryside tradition. It has existed for hundreds of years, and who is anyone to tell them not to do it? Like the subjugation of women was a tradition. Yes. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> so yeah. many things that we've done as tradition, we should be deeply ashamed of, and often are. Do you? I mean, I I've never been to India. Um, it is somewhere I've always wanted to go. But I've always thought that there was a huge sort of ve- uh, vegetarian cuisine there anyway, and that meat is sort of a financial commodity. If you've got money, you can get meat. 
is that something that's changing as they're coming into developing into the into the first world and you hit the nail on the head and young people growing up um, often go to Europe or America come here, and um, then they see what's happening. But nowadays, of course, it's turning the corner. Um, they're thinking that they'll be more Western if they abandon their parents' and grandparents' diet, mm-hmm. which was strictly vegetarian for the most part, all Hindus. Um, and so, no, in the West, we're turning more to the East yeah. and going more in, in favor of vegetarian and vegan things. Look at Greg's and Pret-a-Manger. We've yes. got two vegan pastries on the table right now. And I had a KFC uh, finger-licking vegan chicken you today. You went to KFC? I did, and I took a video of me going into a KFC. <laughs> so, I'm stuck because you've, uh, Peter famously bought the patch next to Colonel Sanders's grave and put up a, basically a, a gravestone to all the dead chickens that had gone through KFC. So you've been to KFC? Yes, I videotaped myself <laughs> going in today uh, in order to admonish the U.S. Uh, or, or try to persuade the U.S. KFC to please bring this finger-licking vegan chicken to the U.S. We'll eat a lot of it, I promise you. There's, I mean, one thing that I've always admired about Peter is it's got a sense of humour quite a lot of the time, but it's singular objective means that it's very easy to bat off any sort of accusations of hypocrisy, if that makes sense. Like you can, mm-hmm. you can attack that clothing line and then change your mind the next day because you've brought them on side. If you yeah, will. pragmatists. I think we, we have a saying in the office that we have our head in the clouds and our feet on the ground. And our main purpose is to reduce suffering. You know, there are people who work for peace. Mm-hmm. And if you ask them, what's your goal? I mean, the goal is to end all wars. Will that ever happen? No, probably not. Human beings love to fight each other over absolutely nothing, kill each other over absolutely nothing. But you strive for that goal of we want a day when animal liberation is is with us. But will we ever get there in the meantime? We'll say that is what we want because mm-hmm. we do, but we'll take all the steps along the way. And see how far we get. Yeah, reduce as much suffering as possible. Fantastic. So when did you leave India? Oh, oh, a time question. <laughs> Before last Tuesday, okay. I was 16. Okay. I was 16. I came back to the UK. And, uh, this was your father getting a job back there? or um, His assignment had finished and he came back here. Um, he worked in London and I went um, to back to grammar school in actually Ware in Hertfordshire. Um, what did you want to be? A ballerina. Don't all little <laughs> girls want to be ballerinas? And boys. Thank you. <laughs> Today, back then it was just the girls. And someone just sent me something about vegan ballet slippers, which I'd never even thought about. Because of the sole, I guess. Yeah, that's the a bit sole. Of leather. Yeah, exactly. And so they make everything now that's vegan. You can't go without anything. Um, when did you become a vegan? Oh, it, I was... Sorry, it's another time question. Yes, it is a time question. This is getting to be really tough. I'm going to fail these things. <laughs> um, about 1968, maybe. I'm still alive. <laughs> There's, I mean, what did people think in the 60s about? I mean, it's the summer of love. It's. Oh, I wasn't that. No, I was hopeless with the hippie business. So what made you want to do it? I ran into a woman who was working for the Animal Welfare Institute. And she told me about factory farming. Mm-hmm. And I had never eaten veal because when I was seven, before we went to India, my mother had gone down to shopping and there were some French activists holding up placards 
of veal farms in France. And my mother was so appalled that she came home. She said, we will never have veal in this house again, mm -hmm. which it was my father's favorite dish. He loved veal cordon bleu that she <laughs> made for him. So that was over. So um, I didn't think about it again until this woman showed me the pictures of factory farms. Then I read Ruth Harrison's book, Animal Machines, I think it was oh. called. Maybe Animal Factories, but I think Animal Machines. We'll put a link to it on the website. We've I got a cried. It, it must be out of print, but I'm sure you can get it. I just bawled my eyes out. I thought, this cannot be happening in a civilized place. It cannot be happening in England. Mm -hmm. And uh, it was. So I decided, all right, I'm going, I'm going vegetarian. Then some years later, I was... Uh, running the dog pound, as it was called then. It's now called something very nice and friendly-sounding. The dog pound in Washington, D.C. This fellow came in who had been on the Sea Shepherd, and they had rammed this whaling ship and mm -hmm. sunk it. And he said to me, what are you putting in your tea? And I said, condensed milk. And he said, oh, so you support the veal industry. And I thought, What? And then he explained, of course, that the only reason we have the veal industry is because we have to do something with the calves when you take them away from the mother so that we can sell the milk. And so that was the end of that. It was black tea until this wonderful selection of vegan tea came along. Here's my black tea that I'm drinking. It says I'm a serial killer on the side of the mug, but with a picture of a unicorn. Um, I'm not quite sure what that's in reference to. I don't know either. It's a bizarre mug to have here, but there you go. Um, yeah, so was that Alex? That was Alex. Okay. So what? Um, how did we get to America? We should probably go back before we jump into what you and Alex oh. did in the 80s. Well, my father came to, went to America because of the Vietnam War, as I mentioned, was working as an advisor to the U.S. government Air Force. And when I was in Pensacola, I met this man uh, who was loved race car driving mm -hmm. And had actually a race car track around his house. <laughs> Is this the start of it? And this, no, but this was sort of like, you're my kind of guy. <laughs> <laughs> and when we were married uh, sometime later, but um, in the early hours of the morning, the local police would come and put the sirens on and go around the racetrack <laughs> and wake us up and we wish them to hell. Um, but I met him. And when I went back to the UK, I was underage. Um, so we eloped. We took the ferry and went over to um, France and then to Spain and holed up there. And my father tried to make me a ward of the court, but he didn't know where I was. So we managed to get married in Barcelona before the before boom dropped. Out. Yes. Have you always been a rebel? <laughs> yes. Yeah, I'm an only child. I went to boarding school, which makes you a rebel uh -huh. or makes you just absolutely subservient. Sure. And that didn't happen. Um, so you're married in Barcelona. Um, when did you move back to the States then? That was 68 when I married in Barcelona okay. and moved back, I think, in 69 or later in 68, probably. And are you aware of things that are changing? And we are sort of around now. You've got um, the Oxford group comes around in 1972, which is the one of the first animal rights groups, I guess, the British one, at least. I'm not sure. I became aware of the Animal Liberation Front, the Band of Mercy. I thought, that's wonderful. They're going in and they're getting animals out. You know, this is marvellous. They're showing people what they're finding out. Did you want to join? I probably had mixed feelings but was busy. <laughs> but I didn't know that 
Animal Liberation, Peter Singer's book, Mm -hmm. often called, you know, the Bible of the Movement, that had come out. And I only found out about that in the mid-70s. But during that time, I had started to work for a humane society, a shelter, and I had started to do cruelty to animals law enforcement work. So I was fully occupied in animal protection. I just hadn't got to animal rights until I read his book. So I read that you got one of the biggest neutering movements sorted? First one in the U.S. um, When I took over this shelter, uh, which was really a wonderful thing to do, it had been, uh, the papers called it a hellhole for animals, and I was able to clean it up just with elbow grease and some command of the people who worked there. I changed things like the adoption criteria. There were dog fighters coming in and putting $5 down on the counter, taking dogs away. So all that was sorted. There were animals going to the laboratories. Georgetown University, George Washington University would just come in, take whatever they wanted for experiments. And I said, no, that's over. But yes, that was the sort of catalyst of, I thought we've got to do something about prevention. So I'd heard about Canada having spay and neuter clinics. Uh And I asked the D.C. government, you know, let's get ahead of this curve of homelessness, the crisis that we still have. We're talking about canine homelessness. Yes, dogs and cats. And so they allowed me to start and passed into law a, a requirement that dogs and cats adopted from the shelter must be sterilized. And we started the clinic and opened it to the public. What did the Americans think about an English woman coming over and telling them what to do? I think they were fascinated by my accent. I don't think they got beyond that. <laughs> I, I find that's still the case now when I'm over there for work. It's silly. <laughs> First of all, it's, are, you, are you Australian? And then, oh, yes. and then they're more intrigued. Yes, there's that. So yes, so 1980, I read that Alex Pacheco came along and showed you Peter Singer's book. No, actually. I had already read it, which um, was why I had changed a lot of what I was doing. But I hadn't figured out the dairy bit Uh until he came along and and quizzed me about it and made me rethink that. And leather. I had a favorite pair of leather shoes, and uh, they went into the homelessness bin. Um, and that was the end of that. Where had he, had he, was it that book that changed him or was it his time on the Sea Shepherd that sort of put him onto animal rights? Everybody is born in some kind of event. I mean, this is a question for him, I suppose. Yeah, I don't really know. I'm sure that Singer's book had been an influence and he'd probably read it before I had because he'd been in Europe. But I think growing up in Mexico, he had seen... Uh, firsthand, the way I had seen in India, cruelty mm-hmm. happening in front of you, animals being slaughtered in front of you. And so that had probably, I know it had had some impact on him. Have you met Peter Singer? Yes. Many times? Several times. Can't remember how many, but Can yes. Can you remember the first time? Um, yes, I think it was the time I was invited to give a talk by him in Colorado, where he was a visiting professor which made me very, very nervous because how could you be giving a talk in front of the man who wrote that book? <laughs> and so I probably flubbed it really badly. <laughs> At least I felt I did. I thought, <gasps> um, so in 1980, Peter was founded by you and Alex. What was it that made you feel you needed to start a group? And was it just the two of you? Did you have any expectations Like, you've changed the world now, but looking back at that moment, you couldn't have known that. No, I think 
the, the, I know why we started the group. He was a student at a local university, so he had limited time. But he was very handsome, so I thought, great, I'm not. You can go and speak to the press if we're lucky enough to get any. Um, so we were a good team, sort of like Jack Spratt and his wife. We, sure. we had different talents. But the reason we started the group, and there were five of us, friends of mine from the uh, dog pound, three of them, and then the two of us, is I thought I grew up with a dog, loved that dog, would have done anything, would have broken into a laboratory if anyone had taken that dog and started to put electrodes in mm. her head, uh, his head, um, those sorts of things. But I hadn't connected the dots. I hadn't realized all these other things. And over time, I had managed as a law enforcement officer to see cruelty on farms. As an inspector for the government, I had seen abominable things done to animals in labs and such neglect and callousness. And I thought, well, most people are like me if they're kind to animals. They haven't seen these behind-the-scenes things. And so we should form a little group and we should show them what's going on and then do the hard, the heavy lifting is the most important thing, which is, of course, in the book, too, is show them what the options are. You can make a kind choice instead of a cruel one, even if you're making an unwittingly cruel case uh, uh, choice. Let's show you why it's cruel, and sure. then you can decide. Are we getting less cruel? Because the population is growing, countries are developing, and there are victories that you are having. There's an amazing bit on your website which just charts every single individual victory that Peter has has accomplished some massive, like the Supreme Court case, and some small, like, oh, I can't remember what the most recent one, but I think it was a, a fashion... Oh, maybe Karl Lagerfeld and, and Prada and those people deciding finally that they didn't have to and would not anymore design for. Mm. Um, I'm not sure. I mean, human nature is human nature. It takes a long time to evolve. Mm -hmm. I think, you know, you see how long it takes for physically people to evolve and get that... That uh, thumb and, and and so on, but I think culture is allowing us to be kinder, and we don't want to be seen to be cruel. And most of us fancy ourselves as kind people, and so if you've got an easy choice, then I think most people will take it. I'm not sure about the evolution of compassion. I just believe we're more understanding now, and the internet have, has certainly helped that. You can just zip around all this information. Whereas we used to have to pamphlet, you know, sure. here, take a leaflet, there's one person who... I guess it's becoming more of a conscious choice to ignore the mounting evidence and changing your lifestyle actively rather than living in joyful ignorance. Yeah, and it's more mainstream, of course, which um, you, you want to be... People always say, well, sheep, you know, and put them down, but sheep stay together for a good reason, for protection, and I think... We, as humans, like to do what everybody else is doing. We like to think of ourselves as unique, of course, mm -hmm. but we like to do, we don't like to really stand out in some odd way. So the more things like veganism are mainstream, then the more people are more inclined to also be vegan, and you see that happening. So what was the first thing that you did with Peter? Well, there was a a slaughterhouse for chickens in Washington, D.C. And I thought we should start it in America because at that time, certainly, and still to a large extent today, people would look at what was happening in the U.S. and want to emulate that. That's mm -hmm. the, what fashion, records, music, whatever, that 
let's do what they're doing. So Since thought, the 80s, America's growing, the, the capitalism is king, it's just yes, massive. exactly. And so we started it there, and um, they had this chicken slaughterhouse, and it was run by a Chinese community, and they would actually keep the, they would take the heads off the chickens in a decapitator, put them upside down in a metal cone and let them bleed to death. And then you could buy your chicken that you had picked out, just as my mother and I did in that market in, in, in uh, Delhi. And they would give you the head, the feet, the whole body. You could just see who that was. Mm-hmm. And I thought, you know, we don't need the, this last remaining slaughterhouse in the area. Let's try to close it down. And I went with the public health officials and showed the filth, the fecal matter, things that you find in any slaughterhouse, and the fact that people were coming in and taking that home with them. We had a demonstration. It was considered so odd to protest on behalf of chickens <laughs> that it was the front page of the Washington Post. And it was on every radio show, every television show. Look at these crazy people who are demonstrating for chickens. <laughs> you know, these stupid little birds. But that was the first thing that we did, and it, it created the conversation. Well, you were... Were you going for that press or was that exposure a surprise? I think it was a surprise. I mean, we knew that people didn't value chickens, that chickens weren't on people's, uh, you know, ethical radar. But the nastiness was Mm. a surprise. And of course, we've come to be used to it, although it's dying down somewhat. Did you make a conscious decision at that point to go, if we're going to have any efficacy, do we need to actively call the press do we need to be a public movement on the front pages or was that just well that was great we closed that and we got coverage let's do something else next but no we we kept going until it was closed we did close it down and um then of course we did many other things the silver spring monkeys i think was the next major thing that we did which was well that's um, the big landmark case that i've read about and was aware of even before going into the research the photographs of those monkeys are one of the most shocking things I think I've ever seen, it's that, it's that, it's again, it's anthropomorphism, but it's the link of primate to human that Jane Goodall was so good at linking up, but to see them all, all in those testing. So take us through the Silver Spring. Tell me what that was. Well, I, I wish that that was really the only thing. I've seen even more horrific things um, since. And of course, just last year, we stopped these infant monkey. Um, studies where they would take the babies away from the mothers and they would then dope up the mothers so that the mothers were semi-conscious or unconscious, put the babies back with them and then frighten the babies with things like electronic snakes, um, loud noises, and the babies would jump on the mothers and try to wake them up. What country are we in now? We're in the U.S., but it's, okay. this was funded by the National Institutes of Mental Health, Institute of Mental Health, which funds experiments all over the world, especially in universities. And these infant mother deprivation experiments are very common, mm-hmm. so we're trying to wipe them out. What is the alter- I mean, this is before we get onto the book. The, the, what is the alternatives to animal testing? Well, it depends what you're looking at. I mean, many of it. Um, Do you think it will? I mean, we've already said that to get towards complete animal health and safety is a long way off, if at all. It's happening, though, even in laboratories, which was sort of the last bastion of the scoundrel. <laughs> um, the this year in the U.S., the Environmental Protection Agency, which is a major, major funder of toxicity experiments on animals, toxicity testing on animals, 
made an announcement mm-hmm. just a few months ago that they're going to end the use of all mammals in experiments. That, that, that's a huge step. Holland is um, within the next, I think it's six years, but don't hold me to that, maybe it's five, are going to phase out all primate experiments. And then they want to phase out all experiments because it's the 21st century. And, you know, we have high-speed computers. You program them with human data. You don't wait four years to see what happens to a rat and then do the same thing on a dog. There's a huge shift in medical understanding now, which is to, to use animal based research on humans proves quite often there's no correlation and it's a complete waste of time and money but similarly to use tests that are predominantly tested on on male humans on women is equally as as useless there there needs to be an appropriate focus upon what the end goal is rather than relying upon methods that even the victorians were using oh absolutely and we see parallels the victorians used to teach children by bringing them down to watch um, a bird in a jar being suffocated to death to show them the about oxygen. I mean, you really don't need that. And yet in school today, we find, and in colleges, we find all sorts of show-and-tell uh, experiments as if people are so brainless that you couldn't tell them that what oxygen is yeah. uh, and so on. Um, no, but today we've got organs on a chip. You know, you have a lung on a chip. And you can bombard it with chemicals and see what happens. We have whole human DNA on the Internet. Um, We just developed an artificial lung to replace the use of rats and mice. And people despise them, but they're feeling little individuals. They're mammals like like a dog or you. That will replace their use where they're stuffed into these tubes and still, to this day, made to inhale nicotine and tobacco. I mean, please... We've, we've got that. We know what the effects of, of that on the human body. And we've got necropsies. You know, going back to these 16, 17, 18-year-old kids in the Vietnam War, they did necropsies on, or autopsies on, on all of the ones they could, and they found hardening of the arteries even then. Mm-hmm. So you don't need to, like, feed high-fat f- diets to monkeys to see if there's any correlation. There's a short film that you, I think Peter produced recently about test subjects that Alex Lockwood made for you, about three female scientists who had worked within, the, within science and animal testing and had actively chosen to stop doing it and to talk out accordingly. Um, I think that's a pretty good place for people to start if they want to know more about that. Well, that's a fascinating subject to me because it is education and miseducation. These three scientists who all work for us now we're told in no uncertain terms, you will not get your PhD. You will not graduate as a doctor unless you use animals. And all three of them either began doing it or at some point in the process realized this isn't benefiting anyone. This is just doing it for doing its sake. Mm. We're not learning anything. And so all three of them independently didn't know each other. They all three decided they would go through with it because they wanted that doctorate. But they felt lousy, and one of them is deeply scarred by it. She actually has kept, as you probably saw in the film, a record of how many. She, she killed over 200 animals in the course of getting her PhD for no reason whatsoever, except that everybody does. Yeah. That's the way it's been done. If you want a few letters before and after your name. Exactly, you and now she keeps creatures. track of how many she's saved. And so she's trying to make amends for what she did. Since that film came out... We've been approached by so many scientists to say, 
that's my story. That's my story. I was made to do that too. And they all were. And so we need to have a different form of education where we put aside this rubbish that's causing the harm to and deaths of so many animals. Do you think there are any exceptions where we do need to do animal testing? I've never found. Believe me, (laughs) I would want to know. I think ethically there isn't, but medically I have never found a case. We have, I think, 1,200 specialists in various types of science and medicine. And when we have that question, is is there another way to do this or are we stuck with this from a scientific, not an ethical, but a scientific uh, point of view, we always shunt it over to them because we don't know. And we always get back, well, no, wait a minute, there's this, that, and the other. It's not necessarily the case with something like um, we're working now on uh, antitoxins or uh, Mm antivenoms. And the way that if you're bitten by a spider or a cobra, you're somewhere, and you have to rush to get a shot to, to counteract this poison that's going and will probably kill you, you now get an antivenom. You have no idea. They are incubated, those antivenoms, in live horses. And the horses develop terrible sores. They lose weight. They're absolutely, totally miserable. And we've now developed, in the last four years, a, an alternative that can be used. Now, it shouldn't have been for us to develop it, this, cha- this animal charity. Mm-hmm. It should be for science to yeah. have decided wonder if there's a better way. Mm-hmm. Let's go and look Rowing for one. Growing toxins in live horses. Yeah, and that's what we find. What's, what do you think is the most shocking reality that people aren't aware of? So, I mean, I've already told you that my understanding of how silk is created was significantly lacking until I read your book. I didn't know about toxins in horses. Like, what's, what's the one thing that you wish everybody knew? The one thing. There isn't a one thing I wish. I I wish people would actually have a principle that if they are about to buy or use something that comes from an animal, the thought would start to grow in their minds that maybe it didn't come to me voluntarily. Uh-huh. Maybe the animal didn't give this up. They're not, it's not a donor product. You know, maybe the animal had it forcibly taken from them or they were killed for it because that is true in most cases. But I'll give you one. Um, recently, we did an investigation in China. A lot of our investigations are in China. No holes barred. Can you have an office there? Um, no, we have. We work out of Manila okay. because the Chinese are not very fond of foreigners telling them what to do. Mm-hmm. Um, so we did this investigation into the production of badger hair, which um, men's shaving brushes, paint brushes, cosmetics brushes. No one gives it a thought. Who would? But the cruelty to the badgers is extraordinary. It's extreme, and they're kept in these tiny cages, and they're killed in, in awful ways. So now we're talking to people, brush companies for art, for shaving, for all these things, and they're changing away to uh, away from using animal hair. And it's the same with crocodiles. People don't have really much sympathy for crocodiles. If you get to know them, in the book I try to talk about their motherly instincts and how they incubate their eggs and all sorts of things, and they like to play. And so you might be more inclined to find them a little bit more endearing than you do. But we went to the uh, African and the Texas alligator and crocodile farms, and the common way to kill them so that you can have a pair of boots or a bag or something is they're fully conscious, and you stick 
um, a rod down their spines, and you then uh, skin them. People don't think of crocodile farms. People don't think of badger farms. Yeah. People might be relatively fine with the idea of a cattle farm, which baffles me if you see any photographs of it. There was a picture Peter shared on social media recently of the udders of a over-milked dairy cow, which was haunting. Dairy is terribly bad. People don't think about dairy, and it's all around us with cheese and yogurt and what have you. And yet there you can see a mother's love. Those mother cows adore their calves. And you talk to people who work on dairy farms, and they talk about three or four days they cry for their babies. I remember quite vividly the first time someone ever asked me, well, where do you think the boy cows are? Or where do you think the boy chickens are? And you're like, no, no, most chickens that are born are women. Uh, Most cows that are born are women. Like, No, there's... There's a something that's going on there, and it's not... And talk about choice. sexual slavery. I mean, mm. People think, oh, don't talk about it in the same breath as talking about a rape of a woman. So a man sticks his hand up into a cow's rectum to find uh, her uterus and then sticks a rod up inside her vagina. Uh, you think that's pleasant? They have to put the cow's head in a stanchion up front because mm. she's bellowing. I mean... No, sexual abuse is sexual abuse. I don't care if she's a cow or where she's do you, me. Where do you stand on like sort of smaller, like small holdings where they get to roam wild? There's conservation involved in it. They're looking after an environment that is supportable. They're maybe maybe it's only a herd of fifty. And I ask, why do you need to do it at all? I mean, you have one cow, you have a methane problem, <laughs> but a nitrous oxide problem. But really, why are we trying so hard to? cling to the idea that you can take a living being hang them up by one leg cut their throat and then you find their flesh tasty you know your taste buds can adjust and i think that unless your taste buds are ruling your heart and your head then just small holding better than big holding but still just another step yeah it's just get get over it so I'm about to ask about the book. Um, <laughs> what book? There's no book. There is no book here. Um, I guess one of the big questions I have about animal rights, which is something I've championed for a very long time, I think is very important. Do you think that humanity has to take a hit in terms of not viewing what we see as a human right? To, we have to step back ourselves in order to make room for the animals. Do we need to reevaluate what we see as a human right? Oh, absolutely, yeah. Yes. I I think that in a way, though, it's like, I mean, I remember we were marching for women's rights, for equal pay, for childcare, and so on, not to be the only person in the office who was asked to bring the coffee to the men um, way back when. And men's rights groups were up in arms, is that this would mean that, you know, men and women had to share the bathroom and that they would lose their wages and all this other hokum. And you thought, well, even if that's true, you have to concede. You have to give way. You can't just continue to dominate. There are others who are entitled to a slice of the pie mm-hmm. uh, or entitled at least to a fair shake. Or You, you can't decide that they're, um, that they're less, less than you just because they're not you. Mm-hmm. And I, yes, it may be that um, humans need to stop it is that i think humans have to stop eating other animals they have to stop experimenting on other animals we're one in the great orchestra of life if you will to put it romantically and we need to get over ourselves we're not gods they're not trash we're all in this together and we're all emotional beings with interests did you ever consider going into politics 
Oh, God, no, I'd be <laughs> terrible at politics. I think you have to be fairly dishonest in politics. Forgive me, any politician living, listening. Do you think Peter's ever been dishonest? I hope not. I mean, we try, we're always criticised for being too frank, showing the reality, um, uncomfortable facts. I don't think so. I'm racking my brain now to think, were we ever doing anything we shouldn't be doing, that, knowing was, that we shouldn't be doing it? There was one, I mean, there was one, there was the cow's milk leads to autism campaign. Oh, okay. I don't think that was dis, oh, it wasn't I mean, that was, there was one scientific paper, I think, that that yes, was based upon. Yes, yes. Um, I think we spoke too quickly on that uh-huh. because there was one scientific paper. And, of course, we were excited to see it. Sure. And so we went with it. And I don't think there's been any replication of it. I may have missed something, but I don't think so. That wasn't being dishonest. I think it was jumping sure. too quickly at something that we should have probably looked into more deeply. Did you employ scientists to work for Peter directly at the time? or is that Because you do that more and more now, as far as I'm was aware. Was that before last Tuesday? It was before last Tuesday. <laughs> I'm not sure, but it wouldn't have gone to them anyway. I okay. think that that part wouldn't have gone to them because we weren't looking for an alternative. Sure. We knew the alternative is just don't drink milk. Yeah. And there is a strong movement that says that autism is connected to cow's milk, but whether or not the science is there... I think it's pretty iffy. Um, in the opening chapters of your book, you posed the question, which animal would you be? So, Ingrid Newkirk. I would be a human animal because... That's such a cop-out. That is such <laughs> a cop-out. It is not. It is not. Because, honestly, the others are vulnerable. All of them are vulnerable. A bird has a better chance unless the bird is a chicken or a duck or a turkey and is on a factory farm because they, or a penguin because they can fly, um, so they can often get away. Mm-hmm. I was just thinking of the tall volcano eruption, mm. and there are birds in cages on that island, but there are also birds who could fly away. The animal tragedies that are going on in this world at the moment as a result of natural disasters, whether it's the volcano in Tal or whether it's the fires in Australia, the, the efforts to try and... Even, even animals that weren't put in harm's way by humans need our help now more than ever. And I, I'm not going anywhere with that other than it's just terrible. It is. An interesting thing, though, and, and this is, it's nice in a way because it shows that people have a heart, is that we get lots of calls saying, we'd like to send you money to help the koala bears. <laughs> and, you know, you think, well, most of them are dead. Yeah. And the ones who aren't dead, there are actually wonderful volunteers on the ground, and there are rescue, wildlife rescue agencies, and we can direct you to them. But could you please join us in the most unhuman thing, which is an ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure, Hmm. and maybe we won't be able to cure global climate change, but you can do something. Personal responsibility is go vegan because of you know, animal-based agriculture being so devastating, but also maybe give money to help forward education to feed people vegan food so they actually see it's tasty. When I walked into the office an hour or so ago, I saw only women, I think. I I don't think I saw many men. But there are some. They're hiding. They're hiding behind their computers. Um, That's men for you. Do you find that there's a gender shift in humanity, that women are more inclined to lean in the direction of animal rights? I would have said yes um, some years back because I think 
women were, have always been more comfortable culturally in being nurturing and being unafraid of showing their feelings and, you know, running to comfort the crying child and look mm. after the baby, the dog, and so on. Um, I see, well, maybe since the 90s, so many men coming into the movement, and sometimes the movement is accused of being male-dominated. So it, there has been a shift, and, and I think it, it's really, it doesn't really matter anymore. It's all over the place. Um, and do you have to be a vegan to work for Peter? No. Um, what you have to be is, in the interview, we will ask you, are you a big game hunter? Are you a <laughs> hunter? Uh, do you go fishing? Are you a vegan? And if people say no, we say, well, would you mind watching this video and letting us know your thoughts about it? If people say, and, you know, God, are you in favor of the use of animals in experimentation? Do you ever see yourself changing that opinion? Watch this video. Let us know what you think. If people say, absolutely not, I could never be a vegan, well, they're not for this job because you will see so much that you will become a vegan. We do not have to nag you about it. Uh -huh. You are just, if you're a decent, kind person, you're going to become one. And so, no, we only hire kind people. And, <laughs> <laughs> and then they'll, they'll figure it out. And, of course, you can't be a non-vegan in the office when you're working. That wouldn't make any sense. Sure. Um, so your 12th book is now out. It's called Animal Kind, Remarkable Discoveries About Animals and Revolutionary New Ways to Show Them Compassion. What are your hopes for this? Is it just reinforcing the Peter message or are there new things that it's saying within there? There are tons of new things in there. I learned a lot writing it and I collect so much information about animals because they fascinate me. Mm -hmm. And I am enamored of them. I'm uh, gobsmacked by some of the things that they can do. But, um, you know, even... People, and, and this is perhaps more, it's not for people who've already got it. It's for fence-sitters, kind people, people who may have a dog at home. And I, when writing the book, I learned, which I didn't know, that the part of a dog's brain that lights up when you give uh, them a treat is exactly the same part of the brain that lights up if you offer a businessman a raise. Really? Yes. So I learned, <laughs> learned these sort of oddball things uh, that, that I knew elephants liked uh, or elephants could swim and uh -huh. that they used their trunks as snorkels. Sure. I didn't know that they loved to swim. And if they're free to do so, they're not in a, on a chain somewhere, but they're, say, Sri Lanka by the ocean side, they will actually run down and jump in mm -hmm. and they might swim for 10, 20 miles, 30 miles even, just for the pleasure of, of swimming. Well, you see that with horses too. Well, we, I mean, we've all come from the sea. We were all uh, aquatic mammals, all came out, grew a bit, and we've got reflexes, uh, reflexes in our human body that shift if you fully submerge yourself in water. There's an amazing book called Deep by James Nestor, which talks about the aquatic mammalian reflexes that we have, which are completely the same as in Wales. Um, but this is a podcast about you, not about James Nestor. So we, won't, <laughs> we won't go into that. Well, if you interview him, you must ask him questions from this book. I will do, most definitely. Um, there's, there's, a, there's a movement going on at the moment for vegan dog food. Yes. What and, do you think about that? Well, for years, we have told people how they can cook if they wish to for their dogs and cats. And there are supplements that have to go into vegan dog and cat food. Mm -hmm. 
the dog and cat food, the, the things, amino acids that you, they have to have, and it's easy enough to get hold of them. They're actually commercial product now sure. called V-Dog and V-Cat that you just add. I always cooked for my dogs, um, and they loved it, and they lived long and, and healthy lives, and they loved the Marmite, and they loved <laughs> curry, and they loved all these sorts of things. But um, the commercial dog food for example, and cat food, come from things called the 4D bins, which mean dead, diseased, dying, and disabled. And I've been to the slaughterhouses and watched things go into that bin. They're marked not fit for human consumption. Mm -hmm. I don't think they're fit for anyone's consumption. And when people say now, oh, my dog is getting these little tumors, my dog has heart disease, and so on, I look at commercial dog and cat food, and I think, that's nothing they should be eating mm -hmm. because dogs and cats normally don't eat horses or cows. I mean, in nature, they might uh, catch a mouse or a bird. And when they open them, they eat the stomach content. And those uh, animals are vegetarian. So they'll eat the plant matter first. Mm -hmm. And if you supplement because you don't like slaughterhouses and you don't like where commercial dog and cat food comes from then they'll be healthy and happy. Do you have pets now? I don't. Um, I travel too much. I'm sure. a good auntie, though. <laughs> <laughs> What's your favorite fact in the book? What's your favorite story? What's... Oh, that's such a cruel thing to ask. Um, I love the facts about chimpanzees, um, not because they are considered so close to human beings, but because I actually a little fish called the wrasse has passed the same gold standard of intelligence as the chimpanzee. Uh, he can recognize himself in, in a mirror. mirror. Mm -hmm. you know. But um, chimpanzees are fascinating because they've been studied so much in nature. Of course, Goodall did such wonderful work. I have great respect for her. Um, they will, if they meet a chimpanzee they don't know very well, just like men at a tube station or something coming across somebody they don't know very well but they know, they'll pat them on the back. You know, there's no embrace. Sure. Um, they do kiss and make up if they have a row with someone. They tell fibs. They are so like humans. They tell fibs. Um, and they uh, unfortunately cheat on their mates. Uh, well, we do that too, back. apparently. Exactly, exactly. Personally, never. There you are. Very good man. <laughs> but I, I found out so much about them. You know, they have almost photographic memories, mm -hmm. and um, they've beaten college students in these memory games where you put numbers or pictures up on a board, have them taken away very quickly, and then you have to put them back where they came from. Sure. So I said, if they've got that photographic memory, you should never show them your ATM PIN number. <laughs> but yeah, there are so many things in the book, but mostly to do with little animals I find fascinating their parenting skills, their ability to navigate by the stars, by low-frequency radio waves, subsonic signals. Even moths send signals to mm -hmm. each other on one side of their wing that the people on the other side can't see. I was listening to a thing about bats the other day, trying to work out how bats don't hit each other in the dark when they fly, and they can change the rapidity with which they squeak, but that only sort of caters for smaller colonies to avoid hitting each other. But the theory is that bats 
can hear their own voice and know their voice distinct to any others. So when they get it bounced back with their, with their, with not no sonar, but the reflective quality yeah. of it, they they can hear themselves. They know themselves. They recognise it, and it's an integral part of their survival mechanisms. I think so many animals are communicating in ways we have no idea. Chicks, you know, communicate. Chickens communicate with their chicks when they're in the egg, mm-hmm. so that when they hatch, they know their mother's voice. And dolphins use whistle language, and each dolphin has a separate whistle name. They can recognize a whistle that they haven't heard for 20 years and know, oh, that's that dolphin, that's Sam, he's come back. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So there are three questions we ask everyone who comes on the podcast. Oh, Lord. Yep. Uh, The first question is, if you could go for a walk anywhere in the world right now, where would it be? I'd go all along the Thames. I really ache to walk the, all along the Thames. And I've walked little bits of it, but I would like to have the time, the leisure, the whatever, to, to set out and do that. It's one of the most amazing rivers. Uh, my partner's a little bit obsessed with it. Mm. Um, and me too, I've always lived by water, and there's something about it. The, the biodiversity especially as well, the way it draws not only humans to it, but the bird life and the animal mm. life is just... Beautiful. And you see, if when it's going in one direction, the seagulls are going down this mm-hmm. way, and then the tide turns, and the seagulls are <laughs> traveling back as if they're on the tube the other way. I adore it. I I'm, haven't seen enough of it. I mean, you, you've been running Peter now for for, uh, for 40. forty years. Mm. I'm in awe of how passionate and supportive of the movement you are. It's it's brilliant. I mean, it's that's awfully nice to say. I mean, I've been doing this podcast for a year, and I'm getting a bit bored of it. <laughs> Well, we've got so much to do, and I can look back. I have that um, wonderful uh, opportunity to look back and see all the strides that have been made and really feel, well, if we could do that. And I look at other social movements Mm -hmm. and think how desperate they must have been thinking this will never happen, and yet it has. So you just have to keep going, chip away, and you'll get there. How many members have you got now? About 6.5 million. That's quite a lot. It is a few, and I don't know all their names. <laughs> <laughs> Do you know their uh, dolphin whistle names? <laughs> no. Um, second question, odd one, but um, should we colonise the moon? I think we've probably done enough harm here and probably haven't learned enough lessons here that we're uh, really responsible enough to go and colonise somewhere else. What are your views on having used Laika the dog, for example, and the chimpanzees that went up? Absolutely atrociously sad. And, of course, people didn't think of it that way then. They thought they had to in the space program. And to think of Laika up there going around and dying and the poor chimpanzee who came back and was celebrated. And people said, oh, look, so happy. But, you know, they stuck that chimpanzee in a small um, cell, basically, And that's how he lived and died until almost the very end of his life. I mean, I've seen dogs come out of customs having been flown across an ocean and they're shaking and they're terrified and they don't know what's happened, the noises, the change in pressure and temperature. And I can't even fathom what a dog or a chimpanzee must have gone through to go up to. The shaking and the noise and they put face masks on them and they strapped them into chairs and so on. No, we did stop NASA from sending monkeys into space, believe it or not. We did sit-ins at NASA offices and at the space museums and so on. And eventually it was the science where they thought, well, you know, we've got astronauts going up. We can see what's happening physiologically to them and mentally to them. Why are we sending monkeys up? So in Peter versus NASA, Peter wins? Yes, in that case. (laughs) Um, What's your biggest triumph, do you think, as Peter? 
changing minds. It's not very sexy to say, but it's changing minds. And it's seeing young people come up and not wanting a fur coat as I did when I was young. They're not going to try on their grandma's fur coat and think, oh, one day I could have one of those. So, yeah, that. Um, If you could bring any... This is the final question. This is the third of, of the three questions. If you could bring any species back from extinction... I wouldn't, because I think extinction, hate to say it, but it's safe forever. And what we do is we bring animals back from the brink as a species, and then later we manage them. And we then go out and hunt them, cull them is the charming word that's used, meaning we just kill them back to what we consider to be a Disney-esque or manageable population. So no, I think we don't need to invent or reinvent or bring back animals who've gone. And evolution is just something that happens with or without us. Perfect. Um, If people want to know more about Peter, they can go to the website, which is... Peter.org, yes, please. Um, What's the best thing people can do other than becoming a vegan, which I predict would probably be the answer? What's the best thing people could do to support your movement and support animals? Please use social media and pass our videos around to educate others because we have to grow and everyone has to have their eyes opened. Everyone has to be given a chance to change. And please buy the book. (laughs) Please buy the book. Wonderful. Thank you very much indeed, Ingrid. You've been brilliant. Oh, that's very kind. Thank you. Thank you very, very much, Ingrid Newkirk. That was truly fascinating from beginning to end, a real pleasure to record. And I challenge you all not to give up dairy having listened to some of the more gruesome images from that episode. As Ingrid said, please do help spread the word of Peter on social media. And what better way to do that than by sharing this interview far and wide? So as always, please do leave us a review online. It really helps feed my ego, as well as supporting the good work of those that we feature on the show. We have another fantastic episode coming your way in a fortnight, but until then, you've been wonderful. That is some running water and birdsong in the background, and we've been Trees of Crowd. See you soon. Oh, the old-